welcome, welcome, welcome into Moments of Genius here on CMRU.ca by students for you. My name is Peter Roman, and this is episode six of the quarantine edition during the winter semester of my show. Today I have three main sports topics. I'm going to talk about a little bit of the NFL offseason. It's kind of a part one preview of the NFL free agency stuff. And I'll talk about the Carson Wentz trade because, well, it involves my favorite team. I'm also going to talk about the UEFA Champions League round of 16. Now, I know there's Champions League games going on today, but I'm just going to talk about the four that happened last week. So it'll just be those four. The ones this week, I'll talk about next week. But my lead today, my opening segment, is, well, not one I was planning on doing until Saturday night happened. But what is wrong with the Calgary Flames? I think I've done a couple of these in the time of doing my show over the last few years. But what is wrong with the Flames? Well, the first thing I will say is that... I wrote out some of this script for this segment after the game on Saturday. And thankfully the game on Monday happened, so I can be a little more calm about this. Because Calgary did beat Toronto 3-0 yesterday, which is good. Because it, you know, one of their most impressive wins of the season. And big thanks to the return of Big Save Dave, also known as David Riddick. He had a tremendous game against Toronto in in yesterday's game but anyway saturday and friday were not so great and yeah let's just say i mean the friday game was kind of upsetting because it felt like calgary could have played a lot better they just didn't play that well and edmonton beat them two to one the saturday game Oh man, yeah, I stopped watching the second period. It was so bad. The Oilers won 7-1 over the Flames on Saturday night. And it's weird because I don't think Calgary had a bad first period, which they've, you know, kind of had over the last month, it feels like, outside of the Toronto game yesterday. But I don't think Calgary had a bad first period against the Oilers. But Michael Backlund took a really bad penalty. And that made it 3-1. to one. And the Flames' penalty kill, by the way, just couldn't stop the Oilers at all. And then Noah Hannafin, basically, in the beginning of the second period, gave it away to McDavid, who had a partial breakaway. And, well, you know, Connor McDavid's probably the best player in hockey. So that's, that's going to end up in the back of your net more times than it's not. And, yeah, it spiraled out of control from there. So 7-1, and that was, again, following a 2-1 to one loss to the Oilers, which was, you know, preceded by a 5-1 loss to Vancouver on Wednesday of last week. So, not great. Not not a great week for Calgary. And again, if they hadn't beaten the Leafs yesterday, you know, it would look a lot worse for them, I think. But what is wrong with the Flames? This is the point of my segment here. And, you know, it's easy to list problems, but I also want to talk about what kind of tangible solutions the Flames can actually have to their issues right now. So here we go. This is my long laundry list of problems. And I want to quickly, before I go through this, this is in no particular order. 
So just because I mentioned something first doesn't mean that it's more pressing or important than the issue I list last. So that's just for clarity's sake. Okay, so my first problem I've identified, which, you know, I think anybody who's ever watched hockey can identify. The third pairing on defense is not very good. And I understand that the Flames lost a lot of defensive depth from last year, you know, salary cap and all that stuff. But the third pair on D this year for most of the season has been Yusuf Alimaki and Nikita Nesterov. The two of them really just don't play well together. And, you know, we've seen this before with Flames defense pairings that don't work well together, but the coaching staff insists on force-feeding them together, and I'm making a reference to the Glenn Gulletson era, but basically, you have a young, technically still a rookie defenseman in Valimaki, who has a lot of really good untapped offensive potential, I think, but him and Nesterov just don't seem to get a good read with each other, they seem to be really bad positionally when they're on the ice together, like, it's just it's really not a good fit at this point in the season, but yet it's kind of been drilled into the lineup at every possible moment. And it's not a good idea to be honest. And I get it, right? You know, the third pairing on defense is, you know, you're not asking for anything spectacular out of them, but, and this was something, you know, we saw a little bit with Shillington finally getting some playing time. I've been wanting that for a while, but I'm hoping we can continue to see a little more creativity with the third pairing on defense. So hopefully we see more of that going forward because I think it's important for Calgary to get that third pairing solved because every time they're on the ice, it almost feels like a liability and you don't, right? I'm not saying your third pair has to be spectacular, but you don't want it to be a total liability. Okay, my next problem. Milan Lucic. For anyone who's listened to my show, you know that I'm not the biggest fan of Lucic, and it's mostly due to his decision-making on the ice. But I will be calm in this and basically say that my problem with Lucic right now, as it you know, is related to this season, has to do with the ice time he's getting which is completely not up to Lucic at all. So I'm not blaming the player himself for this. This is more of a coaching thing. But Jeff Ward seems to love Milan Lucic so much that he plays him in like every important crunch time moment in spite of the fact that, you know, maybe if you're pushing it, he's the eighth best forward on the team. I would have him ninth because... Goudreau, Monaghan, Kachuk, Lindholm, Backlund, Dubé, Maggiapani, and I would say Bennett are all better than Lucic. So I would have him as the ninth best forward, but if someone wants to argue eighth, I'll hear that. But let's just say he's the eighth best forward for argument's sake. The, should the eighth best forward on the team be getting a ton of minutes in crucial situations and in power play situations? My answer to that would be no. I'm not saying give him zero ice time during those moments, but it feels like he's on the ice a lot in those big, you know, last five minutes of the game, you know, power play, that type of stuff. Like, it feels like he gets a lot of ice time, and he doesn't really do anything to justify why he's on the ice because he's not very fast, 
and he can't really do a lot with the puck. And more importantly, Lucic tends to take the stupidest penalties on the team. And the penalty on Friday that he took against the Oilers when the Flames had a power play was just very frustrating. So, and I mean, you know, Lucic does this all the time. He takes really bad penalties at really bad times all the time. And so it makes me really question why he gets so much ice time. And I think that's a problem. Okay, next problem. Sean Monaghan. And this isn't... I mean, it's a little bit performance, but he's... He came back yesterday against Toronto. But he was out the two Edmonton games with a lower body injury. Which, by the way, again, hate the way the NHL does injuries. But Monaghan only has three goals this year, which is abnormally low for him because Monaghan has scored basically 25 plus goals almost every year he's been in the league I get that there's not going to be 82 games this year so he's not going to score 25 but you know even when you downgrade it for inflation like it's or deflation or whatever it's not anywhere close where it should be the injury might play a part in this and this is something I think we've seen with Monaghan a lot is that he gets banged up really easily and it's very rare that you see Monaghan come out of a season without some kind of injury, or two, or four. So, that to me is a concern, and definitely a bit of a problem, because the Flames need Monaghan to score more. And, and I, I think Monaghan's actual performance hasn't been bad this season, but they need him to score more. It's kind of as simple as that. Okay, next problem, Kachuk. So, Matthew Kachuk has, I think, underperformed this season. And I think most people would probably agree with that. He finally scored against Toronto, which was good. Just his sixth goal of the season. But 13 points in 19 games. He's only a plus one on the year. So, and when you consider that eight of his points are on the power play, you know, I think you want a little more from Kachuk five on five. I don't think he's been bad this year, but definitely... Not the level I think people were expecting Kachuk to play at, especially this, especially after the season he had last year. So hopefully for Kachuk, he can build off the good game against Toronto. Let's just say that. But that's been a little bit of an issue for the Flames this year. Okay, the next one, Sam Bennett. The Sam Bennett thing is a general manager problem. Not a Bennett problem. Although it's a little bit of a Bennett problem. But anyway, Sam Bennett has asked for a trade, according to Elliot Friedman of Sportsnet. So, Bennett has four points in 18 games. Sam Bennett is also on the last year of his contract, although he's a restricted free agent. And, yeah, his trade request is not, not an easy thing to deal with as a team, and... You know, the Flames can't really get proper value out of him, but they also just don't play Bennett enough, I don't think. And it's kind of a mismanagement of an asset in a lot of ways. And I think a lot of that falls not only on the head coach, but on the general manager, Bradshaw Living, who I think he needs to sort this out because this is kind of hanging over the team a little bit. Okay, and here we go. My last major problem with this current team the failed signings by our general manager, Brad Treliving, because 
this list is really depressing to read as a Flames fan, but the Flames made some signings in the offseason for depth purposes. And granted, you know, none of the guys you sign for your third or fourth lines are... They're, they're not going to put up crazy numbers, but the numbers the Flames have gotten is downright inexcusable. So Josh Levo has two points in 16 games, zero goals, and Levo's played a lot with the top six. Jacob Nordstrom has zero points in 17 games. Ouch. Nikita Nesterov has zero points in 15 games. And I know he's a defenseman, so it's a little bit different, but zero points, still not great. And then Dominic Simone, zero points, eight games. So, and again, I want to stress this, right? I'm not saying any of these players should be, you know, having like super high point totals. But zero goals for Levo, zero points for Nordstrom and Simone, that is an issue because even if let's just say if all of those players just had three right so let's say levo has you know five points and nordstrom has three and then simone has three that's a big difference just those few points in addition would be at least a few more goals and probably at least a few more wins for calgary but instead we have next to we, we have literally like no production out of those guys and it makes me really miss Toby Reader, who was really good for Calgary last year in the bubble. So that falls on the GM. Those were his signings, and that really falls on him. And so that's kind of my big laundry list of problems with this team. But ultimately, what it comes down to is this. It comes down to the fact that the general manager of the Calgary Flames, Bradshaw Living, he has built this team... This is his team. Don't be mistaken by anything else. This is his team. And if this team continues to fail to live up to expectations, he's the one that needs to fall on the sword. He's the one that needs to lose his job. Because as a general manager of a hockey team, your job, to describe it very simply, is roster construction. That's what you're responsible for roster construction and this is his team this isn't jay feaster's team this isn't daryl sutter's team this is bradshaw living's team he's been here for like five years now and this is his team these have been his decisions and if this team fails again he should be the one to lose his job because he would have failed at doing what he was supposed to do that's my opinion on that i'm okay with the team playing out the season because the way the contracts work for Calgary and plus with COVID and the border and all that, it's hard to trade players mid-season this year. So if they want to, you know, let the team, you know, rise or fall as the year goes on, I'm okay with that. As long as there are decisions made in the offseason that reflect what the group has done, essentially. But that brings me to what can solve the Flames issues. And my answer is, well, they kind of have to do it themselves because there's no one coming to save this team, which I know is kind of a bad answer for what's the solution, hope they fix it themselves, but there really isn't a savior coming. This team, they, they're up against the cap. 
I mean, how many how many chances do these guys need to try and win playoff series? Like, it's do or die this at this point. If they succeed, then great, bring them back. If they fail, GM gets fired, and then you start the rebuild. That's my thought on that, and that's that really should be the solution for this. The solution is if they fail, fire the GM, bring in a new guy, rebuild. If they succeed, then bring the guys back. And that's kind of the way it should be. I'm not sure if that's how it'll actually play out, but that's how it should be. Okay, that's my flame stuff. So, on to the Champions League. The Champions League round of 16 kicked off last week. So on Tuesday there was two games, on Wednesday there was two games. I'll start with the Tuesday games with the big name one. I'm using quotations for that. Barcelona and PSG. PSG won 4-1 the final in this one. And to me, it was kind of... It wasn't very surprising. Because I think we've all known this here for a little while. That Barcelona is a big club in name only. They're a big name. But they're not a big team anymore. Because... This Barcelona team has lost a lot of players. They clearly just are a dumpster fire on defense against any team with a good offense. And Kylian Mbappe had a hat-trick. He was really good in this game. And PSG, I think, what they did really well in this game against Barcelona, tactically anyway, was Barcelona could not defend the flanks. PSG's attacking from wide areas was pretty much unstoppable all game long. And obviously having a player like Mbappe is really helpful when he can score you three goals. But Barcelona was just not very good at stopping the wide attacks from PSG. And I mean, yeah, it's not surprising. It's four away goals as well. So Barcelona, I guess, technically aren't completely out of it yet. But they would need something of a miracle like they got a few years ago against PSG. And I just don't see that happening. This team is just not that good. They're pretty mediocre at best. And, you know, I'm not sure if PSG are a legit favorite to win the Champions League. Because they've been kind of inconsistent at best in, in the league this year. But I do really like PSG's talent. And Barcelona's talent just isn't there. Their teamwork isn't there. And I have to wonder how long Lionel Messi stays. Because... Messi's contract expires at the end of the year. So, I I think he'll probably leave. But we'll have to wait and see. That'll be a story for the summertime. Okay, the other game on Tuesday was Liverpool and Leipzig. So, Liverpool won this game 2 to nothing. I feel a little bit bad for Leipzig because they weren't able to play this game at home just because of the COVID border stuff. So Leipzig had to play their quote-unquote home game in Budapest. And so Liverpool won 2 to nothing, relatively easily. Although I will say that, you know, Leipzig kind of shot themselves in the foot making their own mistakes in this game. But Liverpool was, cr was clinical and they now got quote-unquote two away goals, which... You know, usually that would bode well for them, but Liverpool's been really bad at home in the last couple of weeks in the Premier League, so we'll see if that turns around. I think Liverpool is just a team struggling to deal with all the injuries that have piled up on them this season, but they're still, they still have a lot of quality, 
and I still expect them to win leg two. Okay, the Wednesday games. So, there was one slightly surprising game. Porto beat Juventus 2-1. to one, And then Sevilla played Dortmund in the other match, which I'll talk to, which I'll talk about in just a minute. But Porto, like I said, 2-1 to one win over Juventus. They got a very kind of fortunate early goal as Juventus, a little bit of a fire drill in defense. And Taremi ended up blocking a Chesney clearing and went in to the net. Morega scored in the 46th minute to put Porto up 2 to nothing, Chiesa, though, got one back for Juventus. Very nice goal to at least get them an away goal and get them a little bit of momentum going into the second leg. So it's 2-1, to one, which is good for Porto because they have the lead. But Juventus got the away goal, so Juventus only need to win one nothing at home. Juve, though, this definitely isn't the Juventus team we've seen in years past. And... A lot of that is reflected in the league. You know, the league play this year, they're not first place this year. And, you know, it, it does make you wonder a little bit. Like, Paolo Dybala's injuries definitely, I think, hurt this team as well. Just because of the lack of offensive creativity. But they still have enough quality, I think. And Cristiano Ronaldo is probably the best Champions League player ever. So, don't count him out at all in the second leg. And then the other game, like I said, Sevilla and Borussia Dortmund. This was probably the most exciting game of all the four matchups last week. Dortmund won 3-2, thanks in large part to Erling Haaland's brace. He scored in the 27th and 43rd minute. Sevilla got a late one from Luke de Jong on the 84th to make it 3-2. The problem for Sevilla is that Dortmund got three away goals. And so Dortmund's going to go back home, and they just need to make sure they don't lose by two. And that's kind of where Sevilla is. Very exciting game, though. A lot of offense, a lot of goal scoring. Definitely a fun one to watch. And, I mean, Dortmund, I love the way Dortmund play. They're just kind of a fun team to watch, just as a neutral, just in general. Sevilla, on the other hand, did well offensively, but definitely left a lot to be desired on the defensive side of things against Dortmund in that matchup. But... Dortmund in good control in that one. Okay, so that's the end of that one. Again, I'll have the Champions League matches today and tomorrow for you next week. And my last segment, NFL offseason. So every year I do this, you know, one move that each team should make type of thing. And this year, I'm going to do that in this show for the NFC. But I'm going to start quickly with the Carson Wentz trade, because it relates to what I'm going to say about the Eagles. But the Wentz trade happened. So Carson Wentz was traded to Indianapolis for a third-round pick this year and a conditional pick next year. Basically, if Wentz plays about 12 games next year, it's a first-round pick. If he plays less than that, it'll be a second-round pick next year. So I'll start with the Colts really quickly. For Indy, I think it's a little bit of a gamble, but probably worth it. Wentz gets reunited with Frank Reich, who was the offensive coordinator in Philly when they won the Super Bowl. The Colts aren't quite set in stone yet as far as their team. Like, they they do need a new left tackle because Costanzo's retiring. But they have a lot of money to do so. They also need some wide receiver help because Michael Pittman can't be the only guy there in that position. But Indy, like I said, lots of money in cap space, so they should be fine as far as pursuing free agents they want to get. But 
I think it's a worthwhile gamble. Wentz can be a pretty good quarterback sometimes. He can also be pretty bad, but, you know, I think this year was probably a little bit of an outlier because of how bad Philly's offensive line was. But we'll see how he does next year. But I think it's, for Indianapolis, probably a worthwhile gamble and a relatively cost-friendly contract for them. For Philly, this is just a big, confusing mess. That's probably the right way to say it. So, in order to understand the Eagles' perspective, I'm going to give a really quick timeline. So, event number one, Carson Wentz gets a huge contract way before he needed to. So, that's event number one. Event number two, last offseason they drafted Jalen Hurts in the second round. For some reason. Still not quite sure. Event number three, they fire the only Super Bowl winning head coach in franchise history after the bad season they had this year. A decision I still hate, by the way. Event number four is they hire Frank Reich's offensive coordinator, despite not having the qualifications of some other candidates. You know, I think the logical thought would have been, oh, well, you know, the team wants to fix Carson Wentz. They want him to play better. How about, because we can't bring in Frank Reich, we'll bring in his offensive coordinator. He's going to come in. He's going to fix Wentz. That would be the very logical thought. But logical thoughts are not the things circling around the Eagles front office because event number five is actually we're not going to keep Wentz. We're going to trade him. And so that leaves us with a few questions like, is Sirianni supposed to coach Jalen Hurts? Because I thought he was supposed to be brought in to coach Wentz. Because if he's not brought in to coach Wentz, well, why was Sirianni brought in? Because Brian Dable... And Eric Bieniemy had way better resumes to be head coaches than Sirianni does. And then the other question, of course, is that, you know, do the Eagles actually take a quarterback at number six in the draft? And the answer to that is I really don't know because, again, logical thoughts are not present with the Eagles right now. So anyway, that's a long way of saying I'm not listing anything for them to do in free agency because at this point, the Eagles are a giant tire fire that has no proper end in sight. So really quickly, here we go. The one move each team should make in free agency. I'll start in the NFC East, and I already mentioned my team. So Dallas Cowboys, signed Dak Prescott. Pretty easy. Gotta lock him up. He was really good, suffered a really bad injury, but Prescott is still worth extending because Dallas is really bad without him. Washington, I would say sign a veteran quarterback. I know it's tempting to try and draft a QB, but Washington isn't really close enough unless they trade up a lot, but I don't think that's worth it for them. So I would say sign a veteran QB for them. The New York Giants, I would say re-sign Leonard Williams. He had a really good year for them last year. They need impactful pass rushers. Definitely try and re-sign Leonard Williams. In the North, Chicago, I would say be careful with QB selection. And what I mean by that is don't go overpay for somebody. If you're going to bring in a free agent, bring them in on a one-year contract or a two-year contract you can get out of type of thing. So be careful with that if I'm the Bears. For Green Bay, sign J.J. Watt. They need impactful defensive players. I think he would be an impactful defensive player. For the Lions, don't spend any crazy money. 
Detroit's trying going through this rebuild right now, and it's tempting when you have money freed up to spend it. Don't do it if you're the Lions. If you're Minnesota, get some defensive help. I think the Vikings really need some help on that side of the ball, which really struggled last year. In the South, for Tampa Bay, the defending champs, keep as much of the band together as possible. They're not going to be able to sign everybody, but as much as you can. For the Saints, I would say trade Michael Thomas and start the rebuild, because the Saints are currently projected to be, and I'm just checking, they are projected to be $65 million over the cap, so not great for them. I would say just start the rebuild. This team has kind of hit their ceiling at this point. For Carolina, go get Deshaun Watson. If that's not available, you know, maybe try and trade up. But Deshaun Watson, if he's available, Carolina's in a good position to go get him. And for Atlanta, defensive playmakers. I know it's tempting to take a quarterback at number four, but I would say it's more important to get a defensive game changer than an offensive player because you still have Matt Ryan. Okay, and finally the West. For the Seahawks... Sign offensive linemen. Their old line's been terrible the last little while. For the Rams, try and re-sign Leonard Floyd. It's going to be a little tricky. He had a really good year last year, but he was really important to that defense. I would try everything they can to sign him. For the 49ers, go get Deshaun Watson or bring back as much of your players as you can. The Niners just suffered a bunch of injuries last year. I think they'll be good again this year. And then Arizona... Please sign some offensive linemen. Kyler Murray runs around way too much, and I don't want to see him get hurt. So that's my advice to all the NFC teams and none to my team because they don't deserve it. And that's it for my show. Thank you so much for listening in. And again, next week I'll have the AFC stuff. Next week I'll have Champions League. And to everybody, be happy, be healthy, and stay safe.